It's the most persistent problem facing those who seek God and are not afraid to ask the hard questions. The problem of God and evil is familiar to all of us, young and old. Why would the all-good, all-powerful God allow evil and suffering? And although it is difficult, there are good answers. Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman. Dr. Zuckerman is a scholar, author, and speaker who addresses spiritual and cultural issues of concern to all of us. And Pat spoke on the problem of God and evil at the 2011 Hawaii Apologetics Conference. And today we'll bring you part one of that talk. And by the way, the entire conference, which also featured Dr. William Lane Craig, is available on our website, evidenceandanswers.org. Along with the conference, you'll also find articles, books, interviews, and past radio shows on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. Check it out today at evidenceandanswers.org. And now let's go to Pat Zucharin with part one of The Problem of God and Evil. The problem of evil and suffering poses one of the greatest challenges to belief in God and the trustworthiness of Christianity. Along with the philosophical challenge of how does a good, sovereign, and loving God allow evil and suffering, there is the emotional challenge of dealing with the suffering that results from our experience of evil. The words of Elie Wiesel in his book Night are a haunting reminder of the darkness of the human heart as he describes his horrific experience as a teenage boy imprisoned in a World War II Jewish death camp. He wrote, Never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp, that turned my life into one long night seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget those flames that consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget the nocturnal silence that deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments that murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to ashes. Never shall I forget those things even were I condemned to live as long as God Himself, never. Seeing and experiencing the horrific nightmare of evil can shatter anyone's faith in God. In the radio debates and discussions I have had, the number one challenge always raised is the problem of God and evil. So this poses perhaps the toughest challenge for the Christian to answer. How do the various worldviews address the problem of evil? Well, naturalism denies God but acknowledges the reality of evil. The naturalist believes the universe is ultimately an accident, an act of random chance. Therefore, a naturalist must concede to live in a meaningless world in which there is no hope that evil and suffering will ever be overcome. Not only must the atheist concede that we live a hopeless existence, the atheist must ask himself, how does he define evil? You see, in order to acknowledge something as objectively evil, that means we are measuring it against a perfect universal standard of good from which we have deviated or fallen short. A perfect moral standard implies a moral lawgiver. C.S. Lewis made this point quite clearly in his book, Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis, the renowned author of the Chronicles of Narnia, was an atheist but came to Christ in his 30s. One of the struggles he had with belief in God was the problem of evil and suffering. However, as he wrestled with this dilemma, he came to realize the problem of evil finds its only reasonable solution 
in a divine being. He stated, My argument was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. So the problem of evil actually boomerangs back into an argument for the existence of God. You cannot have a moral law code without a moral lawgiver. Morality does not arise from molecules or even from nature. Morality is always connected to personhood. For example, when you see a cockroach in your home, most of us simply go out there and squish that thing. None of us sit there and contemplate the morality of its existence or how to give it a just trial and then sentence it to a humane and painless death. No, we just go out there and squish that thing. You see, morality and a moral law code are connected with personhood. I remember speaking and someone in the audience raised their hand in objection and said, you know, my wife has tremendous problems shooting a deer. In fact, if I bring home a dead deer, she practically collapses and cries in anguish and sorrow. And I said, well, that's because you're watching too much Bambi. All right. You're attaching personhood to that deer. One of the things that animation does is that it puts personal or human characteristics upon animals and other things in nature. Morality is tied to personhood. Pantheism, the worldview that lies at the foundation for most of the Eastern religions, acknowledges God or a divine essence, but denies the reality of evil. Pantheism believes that the physical world is ultimately an illusion and therefore Evil is an illusion as well, and the aim of human life, therefore, is to escape it. For example, Buddhism teaches that to eliminate suffering, one must eliminate desires and attachments to everything in this world. The true Buddhist, then, lives a solitary life with no attachments to anything in this world, even other individuals. That is why the true Buddhist lives as a monk in solitude vowing never to marry, for that would be attachment to things of this world. However, this solution, this philosophy, denies our humanity and the reality of the world we live in. It is not possible to live without desire, for we are not designed this way. Any worldview that denies the reality of this world and evil is one that is obviously flawed. Modified theism changes the concept of God to say that God is limited and finite and unable to defeat evil. He is in a struggle against evil and we can only hope that God will prevail in this cosmic war. Only Christian theism brings the two together by acknowledging God and the problem of evil. In doing so, it is only theism that can give a reasonable and meaningful answer and it is only Christianity that can give a message of hope in the midst of suffering. Now, when dealing with this issue in our lives and the lives of our friends, we must address two aspects of the problem. The first is the philosophical problem of evil. This deals with the mind and answers the question, how can a good and sovereign God allow evil in this world? In other words, how do I make sense of the evil and suffering in light of my belief in the God of the Bible? 
The second aspect deals with the heart, the personal experience of evil. It answers the question, how do I deal with the heartache and pain from my experience of evil? How do I overcome the pain and hurt without getting destroyed emotionally and spiritually in the process? Now, before we continue, we must first define what we mean by evil. And the definition of evil is this. Evil is the deprivation of some particular good that should be there. Evil, then, is the corruption of the good. For example, a child born blind would be evil because it is the deprivation of sight that should be there. The Holocaust is evil because the Nazis were void of valuing all human life, a moral value that was missing in the hearts of the Nazis. Now, in addressing the problem of evil, there are four questions we must answer. The first question we must answer is in regard to the nature of evil. Did God create evil? The argument is spelled out in this syllogism. First, God created all things. Second, evil is something. Therefore, the third premise, God created evil. How do we answer this paradigm? Well, the answer is found in our definition of evil. Remember, evil is not a thing. Evil is the corruption of a good thing. In other words, evil is a parasite. It cannot exist on its own. For example, evil is like tree rot. You never find tree rot existing by itself. You only find it on living trees, and it is a corrosive element feeding on these trees. Evil is like rust. You never find rust existing by itself. Rust exists where there is metal. Rust is a corruption of what was once good metal. Evil is like a hole. A hole does not exist by itself. It exists in the context of something. So evil is not a thing. It is the corruption of a good thing. So let's return to our syllogism here. Premise one is correct. God created only good things. However, it is premise two that is incorrect. Evil is not a thing. Therefore, premise three doesn't follow. So God did not create evil. The next challenge we must answer is, how did evil arise in a perfect world? This is the question in regards to the origin of evil. Is God the source of evil? The argument goes like this. Premise one, God is absolutely perfect. Premise two, God cannot create anything imperfect. Premise three, and a perfect creature cannot do evil. Therefore, premise four, evil cannot arise in such a world. However, Premise 5. Evil did arise in this world. Hence, either premise 1, God is absolutely perfect, or premise 2, God cannot create anything imperfect, or both the first two premises are false. God is not perfect, and or God did not create a perfect creature. This is one of the most popular and formidable arguments against the existence of God. Well, how do we answer this argument? Well, premise 1, God is absolutely perfect, is correct. Premise 2, God cannot create anything imperfect, is also correct. Premise 3, a perfect creature cannot do evil. This premise is false. Therefore, the following premises are not true. A perfect creature can do evil. The answer is found in what is known as the free will defense. A perfect creature must be able to perform the greatest act of good possible. And what is the greatest act of good? Well, it is to love. However, love requires free will. One must choose to enter into a love relationship, and that is not possible without the ability 
to choose. To be created in the image of God means that we have the ability to do the greatest act of moral good, love, and that requires free will. Free will is the ability to make unforced decisions between two alternatives, good and evil. Love is impossible without freedom. However, in freedom, there is the potential for evil, for a free creature can choose not to love and obey, and that would be evil. So the origin of evil is the misuse of freedom, and freedom is necessary for one to do the greatest moral act of good to love. Let me give you an example. Suppose I were an almighty king and I found a young girl I was interested in in my kingdom. Now suppose I went up to her and ordered her to marry me, or I tell her, I'll kill your father, your mother, your brother, your sisters, your dog, your cat, and burn your house down. Now, does she have a choice? Absolutely not. Well, will I ever know if she truly loves me? No, I'll never know, because she was deprived of her choice. However, suppose, like many of the fairy tales here, that I were an almighty king, but I disguised myself as a pauper, as a peasant, and then befriended her, and then asked her to marry me. Now she has a choice. She can choose other men, or she can choose me, and in her eyes, I'm simply a common man, no different than any other. If she says yes, I will know she loves me, because she had a choice of others, and she chose me. You see, without a choice, love would not be possible. The granting of free will is not evil. For example, Suppose in one of my classes, I gave one of my students the key to my car and instructed them to go down the street and buy pizza for the entire class. Now the student may obey my instructions, or he may disobey and take my car and go racing on the streets with my car. But is my giving him the freedom to use my car evil? No. It is how he uses that freedom. If he obeys, then all works out fine. But if he disobeys, that would be evil. Now, I did not do anything evil by granting him the freedom to use my car. It is how he used his freedom that is good or evil. God created Adam and Eve with the ability to love, and thus they had a free will. It was their choice to reject God's love and disobey that allowed for sin and evil to enter into the world. So God made evil possible, but it is man who made it actual. The third question we must answer is, why does God allow evil to persist? Here's the syllogism to that argument. Premise 1. If God is all good, he would defeat evil. Premise 2. If God is all powerful, he could defeat evil. Premise 3. But evil is not defeated. Therefore, premise 4. No such God exists. He's either not all good or he's not sovereign. He's unable to defeat evil. How do we answer this challenge? Well, well, let's take a look at the premises of the argument. Premise 1. If God is all good, he would defeat evil. This is correct. Premise 2. If God is all powerful, he could defeat evil. This premise is also true. Premise 3. But evil is not defeated. This premise is incorrect in how it is stated. Premise 3 is stated ev <coughs> evil is not defeated, implying it never will be defeated. There's no way for an objector to know this unless he is omniscient. So in order to answer this argument, you must restate premise 3. Let me go through this paradigm again then. Premise 1, God is all good and would defeat evil. Premise 2, God is all powerful and could defeat evil. 
Premise three, but evil is not yet defeated. Therefore, premise four, evil will one day be defeated. The nature of a theistic God guarantees it. He is all-powerful and he can do it. He is all good and wants to do it. Hence, he will do it. God will defeat evil by separating good from evil forever. We see that in Matthew 25 as he separates the sheep from the goats by quarantining evil forever in a place called hell, by punishing evil and rewarding good in heaven, and by defeating death and Satan. Now, the official defeat of evil occurred at Christ's first coming. Upon the cross, Christ officially defeated evil. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15 states, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Official defeat of evil occurred on the cross, but the actual defeat of evil will occur at the end of the age at Christ's second coming as recorded in Revelation 19 through 22. Let me give you an example. In 1944, the Allies launched the greatest land invasion in history, a day known as D-Day, when American and Allied forces landed upon the shores of France. From that moment, we began to push the Germans out of France and the Russians began moving in from the east. It was on D-Day we officially won the war. We knew we had the Germans on the run. We knew what the outcome of the war would be as we continued to advance right on into Germany. However, the actual defeat of Hitler occurred a year later when we actually walked in and took the city of Berlin in 1945. The official defeat of evil occurred on the cross. The actual defeat will occur at God's appointed time. Some will ask, well, then what is God waiting for? Why doesn't he destroy evil now? Well, there are several answers to this, but one is found in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8-9. through 9. Peter writes, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter writes that God remains patient, waiting for more to come to a saving knowledge of his son Jesus Christ. If God were to judge evil right now, all who do not know Christ will end up in hell. I'm glad God did not judge evil in 1980, for had he done so, I would be in hell today. For I opposed Christ and did not repent of my ways until several years later. It is an interesting fact, you know, that many atheists listen to Christian talk radio. I was on a show one evening in Dallas called News Talk, and there was one regular caller named Richard who regularly called the show, and of course, he called the night I was a guest. And he asked the question, well, if God is so powerful, why doesn't he destroy evil now? I smiled and simply said, well, Richard, it's because of people like you. He's waiting for more to come to salvation. God is patient, but his patience will not last forever. One day at his appointed time, when evil has run its course, he will judge evil and bring, the rebellious, bring this rebellious world under his judgment. Well, the next question deals with the purpose of evil. What purpose does it serve? Now, the argument goes like this. Premise one, an all-good God must have a good purpose for everything. Premise two, 
there is no good purpose for some suffering. Hence, premise 3, there cannot be an all-good God. The answer to this argument is this. Just because we do not know a good purpose for the evil we encounter does not mean there isn't any. An all-good, all-knowing God knows a good purpose for everything, including the evil He allows in this world. Now, some evil to us seems to have no good purpose, but an all-good God has a good purpose for everything. You see, there's a bigger picture involved than just you and me. And our Christianity today, unfortunately, is very self-centered. We often have the false idea that Christianity is about my salvation, God then answering my prayers by making my life comfortable and eliminating all suffering from my life. We forget that life is focused and centered not on me, but around God, and that His will be accomplished in my life and here upon this earth. We forget that the Christian life is about God, not about me. It's about God's will being accomplished on this earth and in my life. God's will for each one of us is to first and foremost become like Him. That means developing our character to become mature and more like Christ. For it is in our maturity we experience fullness of joy that we were meant to have. You see, an immature child can experience joy, but a mature person experiences joy at a much deeper and richer level. However, maturity is developed through our suffering. James writes in his first chapter, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So for the Christian, there's purpose, even in our times of suffering. We do not suffer in vain in a meaningless universe. God can use evil and suffering to bring about His purpose in our lives. And His purpose is always for our good and His glory. Joseph discovered this valuable lesson in his life. You know, as a young teenage boy, God had given him a vision that he would one day be the ruler over his people. However, his early life was filled with tragedy, and it seemed impossible that this promise would ever come to pass. Uh, he was sold into slavery by his brothers. Then, while serving as a slave faithfully in Potiphar's house, he was falsely accused by his master's wife and thrown into jail for several years. Then, while in jail, he interprets the dream of Pharaoh's former cupbearer. And Joseph begs the cupbearer, When you are restored to your position, remember me that I am in prison here on false charges. However, the cupbearer forgets about Joseph and he remains in prison for several more years. However, we know the end of the story. Joseph eventually becomes the prime minister of Egypt and later is reunited with his family and was key in the rescuing of two nations from a severe famine. Eventually, Joseph's father dies and his brothers are afraid Joseph would seek revenge. And they come to Joseph to present their case and Joseph, hearing their words, but having years to reflect on all that has happened, came to realize God used the suffering in his life to build his character and prepare him to become the leader of the most powerful empire in the world. You see, God couldn't use that spoiled teenage boy to rule the mightiest empire of the world. He had to develop Joseph's character, and it could only come by the suffering and the trials that he went through. That is why Joseph states at the end in chapter 50 of Genesis, he looks at his brothers and says, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, what you did, you meant evil against me, 
but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, Joseph realized God can use evil and suffering to bring about his purpose in our lives. We may not always understand why or the purpose of our suffering, but we must remember there's a much larger picture and there's a lot more going on than we can possibly understand. So sometimes we may not know why we encounter the suffering we face, but God has a purpose for all things and somehow it fits into his omniscient plan to bring about his purpose in our lives and upon this earth which is always for our good and for his glory. Well, we have run out of time today, so we'll pick it up right there next time on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucharin as Dr. Zucharin speaks on the problem of God and evil. Pat's teaching on the problem of evil is part of the 2011 Hawaii Apologetics Conference and is all available on our website, evidenceandanswers.org. This exciting conference also featured Dr. William Lane Craig joining Pat on topics like science and religion, the existence of God, can we be good without God, the new atheists and their case against God, and the problem of God and evil. Download this conference and you'll take your study of these crucial topics to the next level. So go right now to evidenceandanswers.org. We also invite you to support us financially. Your stewardship and giving helps keep Evidence and Answers on this station and keeps Pat speaking all over the world. Today, more than ever, people need biblical answers to their questions about God and His love for us and the evidence to support those answers. So please let us hear from you today. Just click the donate button at evidence.